I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iscove. And with us today, I am very pleased to say, is Amy B. Harris, the writer-producer on Sex and the City, EP creator-showrunner of the prequel spinoff, The Carrie Diaries, and is currently showrunning The Wilds for Amazon. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We 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 air December 11th, The Wilds. That's so, exciting. You know, Has that been announced? Yes, is this, it is. is it, has it been like... Um, I think, yeah, they're starting okay. to put the launch together. So I think we can say December. Yeah. That's super exciting. I, I actually, yeah. I am I am friends with Susanna and Sarah. So I'm very excited oh, to, to see the yeah. show. I think it's it, going to be tremendous. They, the so. pilot is beautiful. They did such an amazing job. So sorry to No, no, please. <laughs> My apologies. Promote the wilds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm very excited to see it. Um, yeah. So this, this podcast is obviously about 1999. So I, I want to ask... Where were you in 99 and how did Sex and the City come into your life? So in 1999, I was living in Manhattan on the Upper West Side uh, on 72nd between Central Park West and Columbus. Um, just I was actually just starting to look at apartments then uh, to move downtown because now I had a much more downtown oriented life. But at the time, sure. I still lived on the Upper West Side. And um you know, Sex in the City is one of those uh, prod- dream projects where I, Darren Starr was a family friend and he uh-huh. was older than me and our, um, but I, his little brother, we went to nursery school together and we, our families had been friends for years and he had done a show called Central Park West, 
which was about uh, like sort of young people in New York working at a hip magazine. And I was working as an, that was my first job out of college. I was working as an editorial assistant at Vanity Fair. And so um, he asked if he could pick my brain. I said, absolutely. I was so excited. Um, And that show actually didn't, you know, go past a season. Yeah. But it was a huge learning lesson. That was on CBS. And it was just a huge learning lesson. And I literally wrote Darren a letter, because that's what you did then. You did an email and said, if there's a possibility that you should shoot this in New York and I could be a part of it in any way, I would love to. And he said, I need an assistant. Um, and so when that show went off the air, I remember um, he said, look, I'm, I bought this book. Candace Bushnell had... Um, done an article about Central Park West in Vogue and they'd become friends and he was obsessed with her column. And he said, I bought this book based on Candace's columns and both HBO and ABC wanted. And Jamie Tarzis, who was at the time the first female president of a network and the youngest, I think as well, um, was desperate to get the show for ABC because she wanted to kind of make it, you know, a cool, fresh place. Sure. And, but they weren't even sure the title could be sex in the city. <laughs> um, <laughs> So she was like, I can't, like, it was something she wasn't even sure she could get past her uh, standards and practices. And so he's like, I think I'm going with HBO and, you know, are you coming? And I said, yes. And it was, I think I was unemployed for a chunk of time waiting for it to actually happen. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know how I'm going to pay for things. But I felt, I felt there was going to be something good that came out of Sex and the City, although I wasn't sure I had no idea that it was going to be what it became, but I was sure. like, I would have followed Darren anywhere at that point. So, yeah. Do you remember what the gap was? I mean, for, for our listeners, you know, you shoot a pilot and then there's a big swath of time sometimes before the show is picked up to series. Do you remember what that was like in terms of when it was shot? And I mean, do you remember if there was a, I'm mean, just, the reason I ask is as an assistant to sit and wait and not know if you have a job is, is oh, scary. Oh, it was crazy. I, um, I literally had no idea like when it was going to go. And I believe, and I ended up going to work for the Clinton Gore campaign in 96. Oh, wow. Cause I was like, I don't really have a job and I don't know what to do. Sure. Um, and um, I was up for a job in the social secretary's office for when they had their second term. And there was a big pause once the Monica Lewinsky thing broke where they weren't hiring. And I was like, Oh, okay. I guess I'm not going to, that job isn't sort of showing up. I'm going to, I guess I am going to go shoot this pilot of sex in the city. And that was 97, mid 97, maybe. Because um, it, it premieres in it premiered mid-98. In yeah, so yeah. So, God, was the pilot 90... It was. The pilot was 96. And then I went and worked on the campaign. <laughs> this is how... I told you you would ask me gotcha questions. No, the, I, 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 I apologize. It was not meant to and be then, a gotcha question. No, and then we shot the pilot in 96. We had no idea if it was being picked up. I went and worked on the campaign, thought, well, they're it doesn't seem like it's going to go. So I don't know, maybe I will take this other job that got put on hold. And then we shot the series in 97 and went on the air um, in 98. No, I mean, that's that's not right. I'm totally (laughs) wrong. I'm so sorry. We shot the pilot in 97 and then the series in 98 and we premiered in June. Uh, And we had, we were just finishing the last episodes when we premiered. Okay. 
Yeah. So about, there you go. There so, you go. Yeah. 97 was the pilot. 98 was first season. So when you, when you start on, like when the show goes to series, right, and you're Darren's assistant at this point, are you thinking to yourself, my hope is to write for this show? I mean, are, is that where your head is at? Or are you, how, I mean, I know you're probably yeah. not thinking, I mean, you were, you know, however old yeah, you were. Yeah, I was were. like 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I was thinking, I love what this show is about and the things that it's talking about. And even though the characters... Um, I was in my early 20s and they were in their 30s. I, st- I still felt like I was living that life in New York. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had a lot to say about it. I'm not sure I actually did or didn't, um, but I knew I mean, Clearly it was you did. <laughs> yeah, I, but I knew it was something I was desperate to stay a part of. And then the writing staff was put together in that first season and Michael Patrick King would, um, and I didn't even realize this at the beginning. He would take me to lunch or we'd go to dinner after work and he would pitch me stories for um, that they'd been working on in the room. And he said when my face went, I don't have a good poker face, I guess, when I'd be like, or bored or didn't, or got really excited. He's like, I knew we were on the right track or I knew we were sort of off if you kind of made a face or couldn't understand where we were heading with something. So I started thinking, oh, I might have an understanding of story. And Darren, very kindly during Central Park West, had allowed me to be the writer's assistant also. So I knew how writer's rooms worked. Um, I didn't have the balls to write, though. Um, And I remember reading a script that had come in, and Michael said, how is it? It was like a freelance script. And I said, it's it's okay. I think it's going to need work. And he says to this day, he never said this, but this is what I heard in my head and it actually changed my life. So I think that's what I heard. Or maybe I just, he said, if writing isn't all that easy, you should try it. And he's like, I would never say that. And he probably didn't. He probably said something like, yeah, it's tricky to get things right. And writing's really hard or whatever. And that's what I heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought I should try it because it was, I was intrigued by storytelling and I had a lot of ideas. And so I did, I wrote a spec script um, as a sex in the city spec script and said to both Michael and Darren, like, I'd love, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just would love notes on this so that I can try to go get an agent and at some point go work on a show. Um, And I guess I knew it was a script that worked because um Darren came to me and said, will you resend it to me? Because Michael just read it. And so I guess Michael must have said to him, like, it's actually, like, not horrifying and you won't die having to read this and, like, have to look at her and be like, yikes. Um, And so, yeah. And then they said, do you want to move over to the writing staff? And I, uh, of course, was thrilled. That's, I mean... That's the yeah. dream, as I'm sure, that's, as as most of our, our listeners uh, can attest. You know, and, and and I have to say that you know my my writing experience uh, was drastically dissimilar in the sense that I, I didn't work up the ranks, and I wish that I did. Like I wish that I had that sort of working as a writer's assistant and and really kind of seeing the steps, and it makes you a better writer, as I'm sure you can attest to. Um, yeah. So. Look, I think there's versions where it's like being fresh and jumping into a room and not understanding what it looks like is also kind sure. of a good way sometimes that you're not sure. trapped in some of the like uh, patterns that people get yeah. into. Um, but I do think with Sex in the City, where it was such a special room from sort of from for, from day one, I mean, it's yeah. 
how I run every room is very intimate, small, personal, uh, people, you know, even if there's an idea that I'm like, I really want this to go through. Um, if someone has like a completely, like, I don't agree, like a character has to say that then. So the room is very collaborative and every, like I always say to writers, like every script that comes out of here, you should feel ownership of, but you shouldn't feel any sense of failure if it's not working because we didn't do our jobs in here. Um, that's, so that's a very a, healthy way of looking at it. I can't say that I've been in such healthy <laughs> rooms, but I love that that you've created an environment like that. I well, mean, I, I don't I, know. Maybe people feel like she says that, but geez, <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope I, I, I hope find that hard to believe. That. I hope I'm sort of nailing that for people. But yeah, I mean, I and I really do believe it. I think it's, um, I think it's like in a in a great room, everybody piles up with each other mm-hmm. and it, things just get better and better. And then when things aren't working, it's the, we have to figure that out as a group and then, you know, and step-by-step step kind of put that back together. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you just briefly about the writer's room a little bit specifically on Sex and the City and sort of how, cause you know, I, I've listened to podcasts about the writer's room and I've read articles about it, but you were there. So I would love yeah. to know sort of, you know, a lot of people talked about how it was a lot of personal dating experiences that would come into the room. <laughs> I could tell mm-hmm. from your face that that oh seems accurate. Yes. Um, so did you, did you find yourself, I mean, it seems like it's a small intimate room of people that were there for the most of this run of this show, which is also pretty uncommon to have sort of that core of writers for the entire run. Um, you know, you must, it must've been very cathartic, very sort of like emotionally being able to kind of open up with these people and talk about these things. Did that, did did that infuse in the writing? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the team that sort of stayed through, uh, you know, Michael, Jenny Bix, and then uh, a bunch of, a bunch of us came in and sees, I, so I was a producer seasons one and two, and then moved on to the writing staff in three. Um, and that third season where uh, I came in, Julie and Elisa, Julie Rottenberg and Elisa Zaritsky came in um, and Cindy Shupak had come in in season two, like that room sort of held for the rest. A couple people came in and out. We'd have like a Greg Barron who would come in, who would bring in sort of these brilliant, unique male perspectives, which created, um, you know, he just got into you. Chilo came in a little bit later, but the group became so close and intimate and, some of us were in relationships, but most of us were not. And I, my joke is the show should have been called No Sex in the City for me because I couldn't, like, somehow when I came in with stories, I would sort of cannibalize my relationship very quickly and then that person would be gone. It was like, I'd either Doesn't be on a great. date. Well, it's just like you're either on a date with someone who's like, is this going to be in the show? Is this going to be in the oh. show? And you're like, well, this, or they're like, don't talk about me in the room. Don't, and like, you prefer the person who's saying, don't talk about me in the room. But then you're like, I don't, I have to go into a room and talk. Um, But we had become, yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, we talked through relationships and fears and we were all super close. Like we almost like our social life was the show. Like we would go to set and hang out at night. Like people weren't like racing to go out to make other plans. We, we were Mm -hmm. very intimate. I do think. A, I think the 
overall, this romantic stories had a really like resonated with a lot of intimacy because of that. But I think those friendships of those four girls, I think as our friendships, like I didn't know Julie and Elisa until they walked into that writer's room. And those are people I talk to, you know, if not every week, almost every week. And we're all in, we're all in constant touch still. I mean, these were friendships that became so deeply meaningful to us. And I think, you know, that Carrie Miranda fight before she goes to Paris, those were happening because of, we could have those kind of tougher conversations with each other about things that were, you know, painful for us to see in each other or so that intimacy, I think, um, allowed us to tell really relatable stories. Um, and obviously the embarrassing ones too, like something horrifying and funny and weird that had happened to you. You could come into a room and say, is this a funny Charlotte story? Or could this humiliating thing happen to Miranda? Here's the humiliating thing that happened to me. Um, so yeah, I think it, it really, um, Michael was really great at both challenging us and but also giving us a very safe intimate environment to uh be in so that we could tell stories that really mattered to us um yeah so it was always very intimate that's i mean that sounds that sounds wonderful i mean that sounds like uh you know as as a tv writer that sounds like the dream to be able to feel like you can open up and have those conversations um so as I've been rewatching the show, I rewatched season one and obviously season two we're doing through this mini series. I found myself sort of seeing the show kind of deepen as it goes along um, and how, you know, obviously the relationships that the four leads have become longer as well. So you kind of get more into the, it becomes a little less sitcom And I don't say that in a derogatory sense, but just, yeah. you know, it, it becomes a little less, um, you know, guy of the week and the punchlines that come with that. And then the, obviously as the relationships get deeper and richer, um, you know, how did you, how did you feel about sort of, cause you, I mean, you got to see the whole thing. I mean, you literally got to see it from a macro perspective on the whole thing. You know, did you, did you sense that deepening? Did you, did you feel as though, or was it, was it something that was sort of that, that Michael upfront each season would be like, we want to dig into this, this season and we're going to do, how was it sort of orchestrated? He, always had a really clear plan about what he wanted. Um, mm-hmm. So we definitely went in each season. So I think as we were deepening our relationships sure. and getting to know the characters more and deepening like what we thought Carrie and Big were or mm-hmm. what, you know, um, what was Charlotte really looking for and and the things that we could sort of honestly talk about, I think it sort of naturally made the characters more deep and the show deeper. Um, I remember that final episode of season one thinking like that was a twist that was changing Mm -hmm. the show. Like, yes, there was the funny, I'm dating a man with a gherkin in the bathroom crying, which was just funny and hilarious. And Samantha but there was also this sort of deepening moment for Carrie of being like, I can't go away with you if you don't see me as somebody important. And mm-hmm. I, even the way that was shot felt richer and more cinematic. And so I think, and that was very intentional, I think, on Michael and Darren's part. And so the launching into that second season, it was like, and we always talked a lot about biorhythms, like, especially in those first seasons two and two and three, Mm -hmm. like 
every girl couldn't be going through the same thing. So if Charlotte was having a date of the week, then Carrie was breaking up with someone. Miranda was starting a relationship and Samantha might be doing. So we were sort of trying to find, we weren't telling the same story for every girl. Like each Mm -hmm. of those girls sort of was a person you could click into and, if you were going through something, it was like you were on that journey or you were, had a friend on this journey. And that be like, we did sort of biorhythm that out so that mm-hmm. there was always, but it did, it felt like we understood, you know, we were creating something serialized at some point. It wasn't just like little 100%. bites of deliciousness and then mm-hmm. you could put it back and watch another one in a different order. Like I think, in theory, I guess you still could, but by like mid season two, three, those, those carry big story, then moving into Aiden, all of that stuff was, you know, you were in it for, and I say this, uh, with, with love, like the soapiness of it, the uh-huh. sort of, for sure. you know, the, the drama of like, what happens next, as opposed to just like, well, that was satisfying. I don't, I can see one tomorrow or a week later or a month later. Like, I want to come back next Sunday because... Right. You had to get your hooks in people and not just make it feel as though they were just showing up for something once a week. I guess, so I'm curious because, so this, I mean, and you could, be, yeah, we had sorry, lucky, yeah. we were lucky because we had actors who could do it too. Like sometimes you as a writer are like, well, this is what our actors can do. Mm-hmm. And so to ask them to go into these deeper stories isn't necessarily going to work. Like we, we knew like, we had the dream team. We could, you know, Cynthia could be hilarious as Miranda in a humiliating mm-hmm. sex situation, but she could also play like fear and love and emotion. Like each of those girls could come and deliver something more than what the first season was. And it was just like, we were all getting to a place where we were like, oh, we can deepen this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it must be really empowering to know that you have the bench, not just, I mean, you're, obviously the cast is incredible. The staff, the, the writing staff was brilliant. The directors were great. Oh, I, I, I was talking with, with one of our guests the other week about uh, Charlotte's arc and how beautiful I think that is, that she goes from something that could seem superficial to some degree up top and she turns into this uh, over the course of these what she goes through her emotional journey and where she ends up at the other at the end of the series is really beautiful and i think that goes for all the characters but it's just really interesting to see that at a certain point you know oh wow they have this tool in their tool belt like that as a writer there's nothing better than discovering something that, that, that an actor can do and running with that yeah and i think that for us was uh like the way we had to feel safe in the writer's room and know there were people we could trust and that we, we developed that very quickly, but the more it grew, I think the more our writing kind of uh, shimmered with that. I think those actors knowing that they were going to be getting material that they were excited about and Mm -hmm. material that they really wanted to play and that we were writing for them because we trusted them. I think, you know, that's exciting. And very exciting. um, Yeah. And it and it gave them the fun and the confidence to you know chase that. So um, speaking of exciting, basically, Sex and the City and The Sopranos changed television forever, right? I mean, they basically birthed <laughs> HBO. If we're if we're being yeah. if we're being I, honest, it's yeah, crazy to say it and to have been a part of it. But it is it, it it really is sort of this. It's a it's a seismic fulcrum point for the industry that we work in. And I guess my question is sort of twofold. The first is you know. 
did you feel the pressure of that at a certain point in terms of how what the expectations were from your fans or from television critics or whoever. The second part of that is there's this tremendous article. Um, I had Emily Nussbaum on for an episode to talk about, about Sex and City. She wrote this amazing uh, New Yorker article called Difficult Women, where she talked about how Carrie Bradshaw was the first anti-hero female sort of rom-com yeah. character. Um, and I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that and whether that ever sort of entered your, your headspace as you were writing her. Yeah, I think... The good news for us was no, we did not feel the pressure, That's or at great. least I didn't. I think I'm I can be willfully clueless of uh, what's. I mean, I remember the first script I wrote. It was like someone said to me, "It's a good thing it was good because you were moving from being a producer to a writer, and they probably would have had to fire you." And I was like, "Wait, what?" Like it hadn't. So maybe I'm just willfully like plowing forward. But I think being in New York, which is very much maybe part of my personality. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people in my personal life who would argue that. Um, <laughs> being in New York, where not a lot was filming, just Law and Order, really, and then us, and then The Sopranos, mm-hmm. we were living in a little bit of like a bubble, like in a wonderful bubble. So um, I remember going to LA for, they did a premiere in LA for the show one year, maybe season two maybe season three and realizing like oh LA is this whole other animal I'd never lived in LA so I'd been a New Yorker who worked got lucky and worked on a show in New York and then suddenly like I didn't even realize what LA was like how like I could sit at a dinner party and no one talked to me until they realized what I did and then when they heard sex (laughs) in the city it was like whereas in New York people thought it was cool hey I just had a lot of I had my own friends who liked Oh, cool, you're doing a show. And then it was suddenly a hit and they loved it, but they'd seen Central Park West, which I don't think anybody watched and said they'd loved it. So I, I didn't have a lot of like reference point uh-huh. for like how it was going, which I think was good. Like, I think I was just like, I love what I'm writing. And then I did start to feel like people would be like, you know, you'd be coming home from like your Hampton share house and people would be like, I have to get home before nine o'clock because Sex and the City's on. Then I was like, oh, maybe we are getting, we're something like, but because there wasn't Twitter and Instagram and all these other things, we just wrote each season. They landed, people watched, seemed happy we didn't, I don't know, maybe there was people furious and screaming about things, or maybe uh, people were super happy, but we didn't, we weren't in that cacophony of like, I'm on the internet, right. destroyed. I mean, Tom Shales wrote the meanest review of the first season. It was horrendous. He was like, I hate this. It's the worst show I've ever seen. It was totally devastating for us to get that kind of review. And then actually years later, he re-reviewed it and said he was wrong. But so I I remember thinking like, what the hell does that guy know? He's not a woman in New York who's single. Like, I I don't, I'm not listening to that. Like, I hope it doesn't hurt our chances, but beyond that, yeah, so. Now you have a whole million people on Twitter that know even less than that guy does yelling about any number of things. It's, Yeah. yeah. No, I, and look, I've just obviously worked since and it's brutal. Like it definitely sure. like get off Twitter and all of those things when your show goes on the air. Cause it's, everybody has something it's not to healthy. say. 
But um, in terms of the 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 Carrie sort of antihero of it all, mm. which I think is interesting, you know, as I as I rewatch the show, and I I'm, I'll, I'll be honest, I have binged this show many times over the seasons and over the years, and um, you know, it, it continues to be unbelievably entertaining, and I love the show. Um, but I will say that that this time round, I have found myself sort of amazed by how. Uh... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The perception of these four women is sort of over the years feels like there's a lot more going on than people maybe gave it credit for at the time, certainly in its first season. Um, There's just a lot going on in Carrie's character, which is why I think that people love her because she can be sometimes frustrating and human and make decisions that she's messy and, and, and all of those things we hadn't seen before in a female heroine at that, to that degree. I mean, you could draw parallels to Mary Tyler Moore or other sort of, you know, female protagonists, but this was a whole other level. How did you guys approach that as, as you, as you wrote her? You know, for me, I was always sort of flummoxed by the sort of uh, anti-hero title for her Mm -hmm. definition, because to me, she was just, she looked like a person that I knew (laughs) that I was, that I was, you know, I mean, Yes. When talking to a friend who's going back to the same bad boyfriend two years later, it's very frustrating. I've (laughs) been the person who's frustrated. I'm sure I've been the person who's frustrated someone else. And so for me, her mistakes were messy and sometimes hurtful to people. And obviously season four, season four, um, with the affair is like a three, you know, three, sorry. Yeah. Three was obviously like a very dark <laughs> season okay. for people. See, I told you, you were going to get me gotcha questions. I sure. tend not to rewatch the show because I like to remember it all. And it's <laughs> in my head, sure. I guess, but every now and again, I'm like, I should rewatch again. Um, and also <laughs> the seasons kind of have blurred for me in a beautiful way. Like it just feels like a long story I got to be a part of as opposed sure, to like sure. broken, like I don't know chapter to chapter anymore, but um, like she made a lot of mistakes, but yeah. to me, and she was frustrating. I appreciated what people were like, she's annoying. Or, you know, I would hear, yeah. I would occasionally hear that from people, mostly men, but I felt like I got it. Like, or even friends who were like, probably frustrated at a friend at that very moment who was, you know, blowing up their life, making mistakes, hurting people. Um, but I, I, 
I thought she was just a really like interesting human and she was flawed, but like she was a really good friend and she was just trying to figure out what mattered to her and and how to do it. And sometimes she didn't do it very well, which to me made her very lovable and real as opposed to, but I appreciate why, like I, on the look back, I'm so, like now it seems like, oh, okay, that exists. But now I realize like, of course, at the time she really was yeah. the first of that type of character. Um, it, and it, but to me, she was just sort of like me. <laughs> I, I mean, not exactly the, the, yeah, me, no, but no, just no, like understand. the messiness of yeah. who we are as women. I think world. that's, I think that's why it's one of the reasons why the show lasts. It's why the, it's one of the reasons why people watch it still speak of it so highly and love it so much is because they, it's not even about seeing themselves in it. It's just seeing another human being. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it a million times and as writers, all that matters is character. Everything else is just smoke and mirrors. And it's about pe- making people love those characters and yeah. go on the journey they're going on. And, you know, her journey was filled with ups and downs and mistakes and, and in seasons three and four and every season she made some sort of a mistake. And and, and that makes her human. I, I, it also, I, I found myself as I was, I was watching this this second season. You know, there's an episode that where someone dies from a drug overdose. Um, there's some stuff about sexual identity as well. That they're they're pretty heavy subject matter, and you guys yeah. deal with it obviously very adroitly. But I want to kind of ask, you know, in 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 the room, you you obviously. The scene that, that that Emily Nussbaum and I think is sort of like the quintessential moment in season one when the show understood like what it was capable of is the four of them in the back of the cab talking about anal sex. Because it's, first of all, it's a hilarious scene. All four of them are so perfectly, wonderfully defined with four very yeah. different styles of, of comedic timing. And it's wonderful. And it's talking about something that most people just don't talk about. Um, and it, it gave license to the show to be able to do, to talk about almost anything. So... I guess as a writer, my question to you is sort of, that's like a kid who found his daddy's gun, right? Like that, that's an unbelievable amount of power. How did you sort of wield <laughs> that as a room to sort of keep yourself from spinning off into outer space? Well, to use that example, I think it for me is always a very good one. So when I read that script, mm-hmm. um, when it got sent, I think it was FedEx to me or faxed or something, <laughs> you know, a billion years ago, because I was in DC at the time at my parents. And I was horrified. Like, I was literally like, <laughs> oh, because I wasn't in the writer's room yet. So I didn't know that they were going to be playing in that world yet. That was right. really just Michael and Darren talking in a room together and writing. And I was like, this is horrifying. Like, oh, my God, this is too graphic. And, and then I just remember sitting at the table read and Sarah Jessica couldn't read it. Like she was, I couldn't tell if she was playing Carrie or she was just being Sarah Jessica and being utterly horrified. And they were right. giggling and it was uncomfortable. And and then, but it was so alive. And I realized like, oh, that's the show. Like that moment. And then of course I had the horror of like, realizing as I was just about to sit down at the premiere and that show was going to be one of the, uh, you know, episodes that aired that I had made the huge mistake of telling them to sit my parents next to me. So when the cab scene came and I was pouring sweat everywhere because my dad was sitting next to me and then like the worst thing that happened was he laughed. 
Oh, he no. was he was laughing and he was laughing so hard he could like and I was like I think that's actually a worse response for me because it was so embarrassed like he thought it was funny and obviously real in some way and I was just like I go um but that's I think like what you chase right it's like yeah. mm-hmm. just to the edge like we're talking about it in the room and we're laughing and giggling and it's weird and uncomfortable and like then of course samantha can be like oh yes it's wonderful but like the other three characters are having like their own points of view about it and that sort of allows you to stay grounded even if you're talking about something sort of outrageous because it's for women kind of like what do you like it was more it it was a little more bashful or like i don't Mm -hmm. even know if the right word is bashful but it was just it was very human in the way they played it. And I know that's what Michael had in mind probably when he wrote it. And so that was always very helpful to keep in mind, like whatever were our sort of embarrassing feelings are about these things, like those characters should be, give people the freedom to think about these things while also saying like, we're a little, like we're uncomfortable too, or we're empowered right now. So I think it just allowed us to be like, okay, has this ever happened to you? And everyone's like looking away and laughing in the room. And then it's like, okay, that's something that we're all um, here. And then sometimes somebody would bring something up that was just like, no, like, okay, we, there was like on the board for very many years, I think for all of them maybe was like, and I sort of still think it's funny. I probably shouldn't even say it out loud because maybe I'll use it somewhere, but it was like, it was Casper the friendly cum and it was like someone who tells you that they have come, but like you can't tell that they have. That's pretty um, funny. And that's you're funny. like, are you sure? Like, are they lying? <laughs> what is happening? So like right. that somehow just never kind of stuck as something uh-huh. that like they would talk about in any right. real way. Cause I guess maybe Samantha would have shut it down and been like faking it. And then like, right. <laughs> they all would have moved on. I don't know. But it was like, so there were certain things that went up on the board that then just kind of never lived past the board because they couldn't sort of handle the test of everyone talking about it and figuring out what it meant to them. It's What I'm taking away from what you're saying too is that, you know, one of the things that this show was tagged with um, by less astute people was, you know, audacious for the sake of being audacious, which I don't think it actually was. And you're proving that right now, which is that there's a lot of, not just thought put into these things, but humanity put into these things, right? The reason that this stuff resonates isn't just because it's funny, although it is very funny. It's that it speaks to people and it makes people feel less ashamed because there's, there is shame attached to some of these things, which there shouldn't be. Um, yeah. There's shame attached to way too many things in society you know, that, that we live with on a daily basis. And all that stuff should go away and no one should be ashamed of being the, pe- the person that they are or being with the person they want to be with, whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's the thing, one of the things I love about the show is the sort of let your freak flag fly of it all. That the show is just totally. about like, be you uh, in, and there's another weirdo out there for you and it'll all work itself out. Um, yeah. And then Jenny used to say, Jenny Bix used to say, and I loved this. Um, yes, there's nudity and nakedness in the show, but the nakedness that we're really exploring is uh, the emotional nakedness, which can mm-hmm. be very raw and uncomfortable for people. Um, the other kind of nudity, the outrageousness, that's, that's a part of it. But at the bottom of the show and why Carrie is a little bit maybe of an antihero for some people is it was very raw and sometimes raw is uh, messy 
and not always as attractive as you want it to be. And people don't want to be uncomfortable, like full stop. We see that in so, so many different ways. Um, Conversations people don't want to have about certain things because it makes them uncomfortable and they'd rather just like put it away in a box and never talk about it. Um, Which is again, why the show is wonderful. What we really, I do agree, like what we, you know, we were all coming at our life from, you know, we all had our own perspectives and like at the end of the day, it was just about like you, your friendships mean so, like at the end of the day, the love story for me was always the friendships. Uh, You know, it was great that the girls got to hopefully find relationships or, you know, have journeys that felt fulfilling in terms of romance but at the end of the day for me that show was about how much your female or male friendships matter to you well that's a perfect segue into a question that i have to ask um which is about big (laughs) i I have to ask the question just in terms of I'm going to pretend like the movies don't exist because it's just better for my mental health if I do that. But the series <laughs> ends in a way that I think is really um, satisfying. <laughs> um, well, because yeah. I just, they don't necessarily feel like canon. They don't feel like the show to me. So I'm just, I, I just put them They're different. They're, They're different. They're three act movies have a different, they do something different right. than a series does for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's a different animal with a, with a, with yeah. a budget that seems enormous and just things that the intimacy of the show is what I love about the show and, and the messiness of it and all of that. Um, You know, I think that, that the show ends on a note that is a little bit ambiguous, right? I mean, big is coming back and we finally know his name and whatever, but it's, it's not concrete in the sense that, you know, are these two going to end up for together forever? And, and I think that, that, that was a way of having your cake and eating it too, a little bit. For the people that want to believe that she ends up with Big Forever, they can have that. And for the realists that believe that maybe they don't, uh, they can have that too. Um, Was that a goal? Was was it, I mean, I can't imagine anything harder than ending a show like this on a satisfying everybody. I mean, that must be very difficult. Yeah, I think um, like from a romantic comedy perspective, which I think at the end of the day, the series really was. Mm -hmm. um, And we talked a lot about you know, all four women in the show sort of ended up with men. Although for us, we really felt like Samantha, that was Smith was somebody, but it was more that the happy ending for her is that she gets her sex drive back. Mm -hmm. And after like this difficult illness. Mm -hmm. Um, But we talked about that a lot. Like what was our responsibility to the audience to say like, we've spent six years saying your happy ending is whatever you want it to be. And then like, three out of the four girls end up in happy relationships. Yeah. And I think what I love so much about the way Michael wrote those last sentences as she's walking down Fifth Avenue was like, if you're lucky enough to find somebody who loves you for you, for the bet, like the you, you love, that's mm-hmm. something. And that is, I think at the end of the day, like what we were celebrating is sure. um, I think most people do want to find love and like the, whether that love looks like a wedding or living with someone or living on two separate, you know, parts of a park, uh, you know, or never living together at all or not, you know, it's like, but I do think we were talking about sex and love and that's so one of the happy endings is that you find love. But I think what we really wanted was that they loved themselves and figured out like, 
Charlotte's journey to Harry is Mm -hmm. about learning to like really know what's important to you. Um, And that obviously like marrying Harry was part of that experience for her, but it's also about like Charlotte letting things away that weren't important. And Miranda, same thing, like, you know, stop thinking your life is this, 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 there's other things that can come into it. There's Brooklyn, there's a husband, there's a baby, like you can be you and still have all those things. And I think, but we did discuss a lot whether or not like she should end up with big because I felt sort of, for me, I felt like it would have been a bit of a ripoff for an audience watching what I thought was a romantic comedy for there not to be some version of a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved that it ended on a little bit of a note where if you were uh, more of a cynic about where love went, that it's like, well, they probably didn't end up together. I was fine with that too. Um, And if you wanted the romantic version, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of the women who watched the show were on the journey at the same time. And, and a lot of, some of those people did get married. Some of them didn't like, but um, I think just even watching the women be on the journey at the end. And that's where I felt like we sort of left Carrie, like, yes, of course she and big, I mean, you're right. The movies sort of tell you what we thought. Yeah. They tell you where they ended up. But yeah, I think what I did love about the series was that you could sort of imagine your own ending for her. You know, it's, as, as you were talking there, I, it, you really beautifully kind of crystallized for me something that I don't think people took note of when the finale or the last sort of string of episodes aired, which is that um, it was about the individual characters. It was about Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, and, and Miranda. Um, figuring something out for themselves. There's the unfortunate reality that a lot of people took away while they all got paired off. But I don't really think that that's ultimately what you guys were ending the series with. You were trying to end it in a place of making sure that all of these characters felt like they had grown and learned something about themselves in the process of the 94 episodes that you guys had made. And I think that, you know, hopefully good critics took that away from it and, and that enough people took that away from it and didn't sort of see it as an endorsement of, you know, you're only complete if you find somebody else. Cause that's not yeah, and a, that a is great message. Certainly. And that, you know, it was funny when one of the examples I think that was sort of interesting when we were doing the finale, you know, Tim Van Patten directed mm-hmm. the finale and so brilliant and talented. Um, and, you know, I think, Michael wrote something in the action line, like uh, Samantha and Smith are in bed together. Uh, Finally, she's having sex again or something like, like, however he wrote it, when Tim was first talking about it, he sort of envisioned this uh, romantic scene. And Michael's like, Oh no, this is like, she got her, like, she's so, she can't believe she's back in her body. Like she is so like, she is like, you know, euphoric and her rebornness. This isn't about her love of Smith. It is about the thing she loves the most, which is her sexuality and her pleasure is back in her body. And I think that is kind of like, yes, some of them coupled off in ways that, but it was like at the end of the day, it was about how they grew in ways that allowed them to find relationships that worked for them, whatever those look like for them at the time. Like, you know, I always envisioned that Carrie and Big were not living together for many years after they got back together. 
I agree. Yeah. Um, so just to, to wrap it up, and, and I could talk to you for, for an hour about the Carrie Diaries as well. Um, I do I do just want to say it's a wonderful show and our listeners should seek it out. I know that it's, it's streaming on, on the CW's website and yeah. you can buy it on all the various things. Yeah, um, very but I, proud I do want, of it. It's it's a it's a wonderful show with some of the best music supervision of any television show. Oh my god! I Unbelievable, know. spectacular. Um, just and also Alex, just uh, that's, uh, uh, that's our music supervisor. Tremendous She's music brilliant. and 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 just a, a Valentine to the '80s in all the best ways. Um, so I, I, my my question is really just really just one question, which is, you know how do you approach something like that? I mean, it's, it's, it was an hour. You, you were going from a half hour to an hour. Um, you know, you were doing a prequel. Um, you know, it, it's, I just, I can't imagine sort of the expectation that must have, you must have felt for that. Um, how did you sort of, what was, you know, what was your way in outside of, I'm assuming Candace's book to some degree? Yeah. Well, again, I'm realizing it's a, theme that I didn't realize like absolute blinders on refusing to acknowledge like how right. much like I could have been stoned and you know <laughs> stoned to death for like touching the canon that was you know sex in the city for people like I just mm-hmm. was sort of like I love this yep. I'm curious about Carrie Young what made her mm-hmm. who she was um and Candace's book was a phenomenal jumping off point a lot of it mm-hmm. is in the book, like a lot of the characters. And then I sort of emerged them. There was a lot of discussion when the CW wanted to do the show, you know, Michael immediately said like, I'm, I can't, he was doing two broke girls. He's like, I can't do it, but I want it to be Amy. Um, Mm -hmm. She's the person I trust with this sort of younger version. Um, And I think the original idea that they sort of were hopeful for is like Muppet baby, kind (laughs) of like all four girls, but they're young. And I was like, which makes no sense. Makes no sense. They didn't know each other. And I was like, I was very like, I want to do this. I, I want to meet Carrie when she is pre like a virgin before she knows love is. I like, I see her, I know her. I like, I was so excited, but I was like, it has to be like, I know we need New York because you have, you can't do Carrie without New York. But I was like, let's have her, like her first love affair can be with New York. And then all the people around her that come with that new part of her life. Um, And Candace had that the mother had passed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we had this, in the, in the show, we had written an episode where she says like her dad had gone and that's why Ron Rifkin episode, right? Yeah. yeah, Why she was so messed up about men. Um, And I never bought that at all. And I sort of always said like, I really don't (laughs) like that. I was mad when it ended up in the series because (laughs) I have, uh, or had my father just passed. I had a wonderful relationship with my father um, who I, really adored and he thought my sister and I were like amazing and could do anything and you know we grew up in the 80s I guess when girls weren't supposed to or didn't think that as much my dad just was like you guys are going out into the world and doing everything um and so and I felt like I was kind of messed up about men because I had a really great dad who I really liked and I was like I who thought I was amazing and could go out into the world so I didn't I was like, if someone comes into my life, it has to be somebody really valuable 
and meaningful to me because I, I don't, I'm not filling any void there of like, who will love, what man will love me? It's like, I have a great dad. And now it's like, who, who is going to like broaden my world and sure. make it even better? Like, as opposed to like, who's going to make this happen for me? Um, so I was really excited to sort of explore that version of Carrie. Um, and I just, I sort of fell in like, I kind of, I don't know, I sort of very, it was one of those scripts where I was, when I was writing it, I just very quickly found things that I was intrigued by. Like, the, obviously the 80s is something I knew about, um, having, you know, grown up in it. But I, yeah, for me, that show really, like, crystallized pretty fast. It was like, you know, two sisters, a father, like the hot guy at school, like the girlfriends who are reminiscent of Charlotte and mm -hmm. Samantha and Miranda, but aren't, you know, aren't fully realized that they, they weren't archetypes. Like it's interesting in a way, like sex in the city, it's these characters sort of started as archetypes and were able to grow as they went along. And the fun thing with Carrie diaries was they really got to, start as sort of like a little more amorphous because they were young and trying to figure out who they were. Um, and what so, a cast. Yeah, I, I mean, Anna Sophia Robb was, oh was God, unbelievable. So and Ellen Wong was amazing. Like just, just a tremendous cast. And, and yeah. it's, it's, it's one I of mean, those shows Austin that Butler, just, when he walked in the room, I was like, Oh my God, this kid is a movie star. I mean, he's going to, He's going to be Elvis. Yeah, and now he is going to be a movie star. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was yeah. just, and they were, the like it that was just a very wonderful like Anna Sophia is one of those very special people who like immediately knew like even though she was like one of the youngest people in the cast like she, she was, was unbelievable it's, yeah. it's 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 it is it is one of those shows and I you know I was I was an assistant at UTA for many years um before ultimately writing um professionally and I remember when that script came in and I remember when that DVD came in and I remember just the you know, people were very excited about it for good reason. I remember the art campaign. Like, it was just a show that I was convinced was, you know, was, you know, really, really wonderful. And I, I it's a shame that, that it didn't last longer. I wish that it got some more seasons, but, you know. Yeah, I always think that we sort of, we were right at the point where like a point four seemed like a yikes. And then the next year they were like, a point two is not so terrible. I was like, <laughs> we were literally just like on that cusp of like yeah. when the world was changing. It would um, it would be the biggest HBO Max show on 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 television right now. But I you know. know, I know. I have don't worry, I have a I have a like a last little love song I wanna write, actually. Oh, I have an idea. That's exciting. And I've always been trying to figure out how to now that maybe I can, you know, now that there is HBO Max, I've always had this idea of sort of a two hour sort of movie that takes you oh, cool. off of her sort of young life and into. Oh, I love Yeah. You know. Yeah. Sounds great. So. Well, thank you so, so much for being here thank and you. for coming on this here and really for taking fun. the time. Thank I know you you're so incredibly busy with, with no, the wilds, which is... everyone should watch when that premieres in yes, December, in but, December, but, uh, yes. but truthfully, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. This was really awesome. You, I was like to have such good thoughtful <laughs> questions. It was really fun. Oh, thank you. Amy. Made me want to rewatch the show. I'm going to go rewatch it. <laughs> there you it. go. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.